Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying the show where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Kevin Kosar and Executive Council student Benjamin Mays on what's happening with Congress. But before I turn it over to Benjamin, and even before I talk about the Summer Honors Program, I also want to note how amazing I think it is that we have these opportunities at AEI to connect current students like Benjamin with AEI scholars like Kevin. And it happens not only through our podcast here on the Campus Exchange, but also throughout the year in our Executive Council Program. And I'm especially thinking about that right now because Kevin just recently gave a breakout session at our Executive Council Spring Summit in Austin, Texas, where Benjamin was attending. So it's a unique thrill for me to be able to connect students with scholars through a variety of different ways, whether that's here on the podcast, through our Executive Council program, or through our Summer Honors program, which I want to talk to you about now before I turn it over to Benjamin for the rest of the show. So if you've been listening along, you know that our Summer Honors Program takes place in Washington, D.C. each June, and we're talking about it right now because our application deadline of March 15th is only a few weeks away. AI's Summer Honors is an all-expenses-paid experience for current undergraduates to come to D.C. to learn from top policy experts, both AI scholars and others. Some of the courses we're offering this year will cover the changing nature of warfare, taught by AEI's Corey Shockey, polarization and pluralism with David French of the New York Times, and the foundations of democratic capitalism with AEI's Michael Strain. In addition to the time in seminars, students will also have the opportunity to connect and network with other students, young professionals, and experts across the political and policy spectrum. So if you are a current college student or you know someone who may be interested, head on over to AEI.org or just Google AEI Summer Honors to learn more. And as always, to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI, consider joining our year-round Executive Council program, where you, like Benjamin, could get to interact with scholars like Kevin. You can also follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy today's conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Benjamin Mays, and I'm a senior at Cedarville University studying political science. Today, I am grateful to be speaking with Dr. Kevin Kosar. Dr. Kosar is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the U.S. Congress and the administrative state. Earlier, Dr. Kosar spent more than a decade working for the Congressional Research Service, where he focused on a wide range of public administration issues. He has taught public policy at New York University and has lectured on public administration at Metropolitan College of New York. One of his several books includes Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. Dr. Kosar has testified before Congress and has been widely published. His journal articles include the Journal of Postal History, National Affairs, Presidential Studies Quarterly, PS Journal, Public Administration Review, and the Wayne Law Review. Dr. Kosar has a doctorate and a master's degree in politics from New York University 
and has a bachelor's degree in political science from The Ohio State University. Dr. Kosar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Kosar, in your book, you write that Congress's problems are self-imposed. So I'm wondering if you could explain this to our listeners a little bit, what you mean by this, and also, why did you decide to co-author this book in the first place? Sure. Happy to uh, answer those questions. Well, I think it's helpful to start by remembering the vision of Congress put forth in the U.S. Constitution. Article 1, the very first article structuring our federal government. Article 1 is focused on Congress. Congress is not merely one amongst equals or even the first amongst equals. It was designed to be preeminent. It has all lawmaking authority, all revenue-raising authority. It can create the entire executive branch. That's, you know, Article 2. It can create the whole judiciary out there, Article 3. It was supposed to be this powerful thing. And amongst the powers that Congress was given by the Constitution was the power to create its own rules, internally structure itself as it deems fit, and to fund itself however much it needs. Fast forward to today, if you ask your average American, you know, what's the most powerful branch of government? They'll probably point to the presidency. Maybe they'll also point to the uh, Supreme Court, the third branch of government, thinking about Roe v. Wade or, you know, Dobbs or other major court cases that have a real policy effect on people's lives. They're probably not going to think about Congress. And that is in part due to the fact that Congress has weakened itself. It has delegated away lots of authority to the executive branch, lots of authority to the judiciary, and it's made itself somewhat anachronistic because it has not invested in itself. It has not upgraded its capacity so that it can meet the demands of today. And that leads me to why we wrote the book, Congress Overwhelmed. Um, you know, I spent 11 years at the Congressional Research Service working with members of Congress both sides of the I.O. congressional staff every day, hundreds of interactions every year with them. And it was astonishing to me how hangdog so many of them seemed. They just felt powerless. They felt overwhelmed by the expectations. They felt unable to do the things that they thought they should do. And I remember looking at this like, this is so strange. And that's kind of what sparked me to want to dig into this. And also there was just this larger desire to see a rejuvenation of representative government. Dr. Kosar, thank you so much for mentioning the importance of Congress. I think many Americans don't realize the importance of the first branch of government, yet it is our first branch of government, which is such an important point. So Dr. Kosar, about a month ago, I started reading Congress Overwhelmed. I have my copy with me here today. And at the time, we had an interesting race for House Speaker going on. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through this process of the race for House Speaker. I think that many Americans were frustrated by the 15 ballots that it took for this race to conclude and by the entire political process that went on in Congress. And I wanted to point to a recent poll by Gallup from January of this year, which, which reports that 75% of Americans now disapprove of Congress. 
So the American people, and it seems like many of those in Congress are dissatisfied, you could say overwhelmed by Congress. So my question for you is, what do you think got us to this point? And is this surprising for you? And where do we go from here? Well, um, how did we get to this point? That's a that's a very good question. Um, I say think that we got to this point by a few means. Uh, one is that Congress just underinvested it in itself, um, giving itself adequate staffing, you know, up to date procedures and structures for just processing work like any other organization does. You got work to do. Well, you got to arrange your processes, you got to get the right people in there, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, people are astonished when I tell them that if you look at the number of staff on Capitol Hill in the 1980s, and you look at the number today, today's number is significantly lower. But at the same time, the size of government has grown and grown and grown. And that's another problem, government giganticism. Every time we get a new crop of legislators rolling into town, they have ideas about stuff they want to do. And often what they do is create new things that are layered atop previous policies and institutions and the like. And so you have this aggregation that occurs year after year after year after year. I mean, we have 180 federal agencies. How exactly are 535 people in Congress supposed to oversee them to say nothing of direct their activities, which is what the founders wanted? So we got those two factors. Um, We also have a politics industry, and this is, I would say, factor three, that is getting increasingly good at what it does, which is to win elections. Now, just to pause for a moment, why do we have elections? Elections are supposed to be the means for picking the people who represent us. They are also a means for limiting the power of the people who have been elected. They get out of line, you can get rid of them. Well, increasingly, what we've seen is that the means has become the end. It's just win, baby. And whether it's the campaign consultants who are drawing on big data, whether it's the people who draw up congressional districts, whether it's the kind of madmen media sorts, Everybody's getting better at their jobs, which is to push Americans' buttons, to tip them one way or another, or to carve up demographics one way or another to win the elections. And, you know, one thing that's happened in Congress is that the days when one party or the other would have a landslide election and there would be this huge margin, massive majority, those are gone. Those are just gone. Partisan majorities are getting more and more narrow, which brings us to the matter of Kevin McCarthy. Um, You know, it's a funny thing. Those of us who took high school civics, we probably were forced to read James Madison a little bit. And he talked about big problem in representative democracy is factions. Small numbers of people who have a particular idea that not everybody else agrees with, but they're going to try to get it enacted into policy. And that can lead to tyranny of the minority or some such. Okay, that, Madison said, is a fact of society. Diversity and all its sorts foments factionalism. 
So why do we have Congress? Well, Congress is a place where factions are supposed to beat up on each other. So they're not beating up on each other out in the streets. They're supposed to be combative. So we really shouldn't be surprised when a political party that has a narrow majority in a chamber has difficulty um, picking a leader. Yet, unfortunately, uh, the mainstream media treats combat, conflict in politics as dysfunction. They tell us it's bad. They cheer if the Democrats can all be united behind Hakeem Jeffries as the heir apparent to the speakership in the future. Uh, And that's not really how politics is supposed to work. It's supposed to be contentious. Um, And so the Kevin McCarthy thing didn't surprise me at all. His majority is microscopic. And a legislator being a rational creature is going to use that vote. I have a vote. You need my vote as an opportunity for leverage. And House Freedom Caucus, they, they used it. And they bargained hard. And they got what they wanted. And McCarthy got what he wanted. And that's okay. That's kind of the way the system is supposed to work. The sausage making, we, we Americans do not like haggling and the sausage making and the messiness of it all. We tend to be a moralistic principled people who are focused on outcomes. But politics can't be like that. It's always going to be messy. Politics is always going to be messy. I love it. So on one side, you have the political side of Congress, where you have those in Congress who are constantly campaigning to get reelected. And you have on the other side, the institutional side, uh, where you have the committees and the staffers themselves. So what part of Congress do you believe is underperforming? And then I would be remiss not to ask you uh, how you believe that these institutional aspects of Congress can be reformed. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, like I said, uh, the politics industry has gotten ever better at winning elections. They typically win elections by uh, latching in onto polarizing issues and aiming to amp up voters' anger. People who run to the uh, ballot box more frequently based upon rage than upon warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, protest voting is pretty common. Parties know that. So the question is, how do you have a legislature that works? Well, what you need to do is to create the spaces where legislators can be forced to bargain with one another. And that place historically has been committees. Um, Trying to do bargaining on the floor of the chamber is really difficult today, not least because of television cameras. Members of Congress have strong incentives to use that moment to politic, to fundraise. I'm going to introduce an amendment to make you look bad, you Democrats or you Republicans. The cameras are right there recording it all. I can bombast and holler and wave my arms and call you guys names. So the floor is not the great place to do that. Committees are the place to do that. Committees, by their nature, have to be bipartisan enterprises. Um... And committees, unfortunately, the quantity of staff has declined. Um, Unfortunately, both parties have also gotten into the practice of handing out committee chairmanships, not based upon seniority, how long a member has served in Congress, which historically, um, you know, for much of the 20th century, that's the way it worked. Instead, it's, are you a good team player? And do you raise enough money? for re-election and donate enough to the party. Um, 
the result, you know, and this is kind of a larger picture problem, is that we've got a chamber that's become more hierarchical. So much power rests in the hands of the speaker or over in the Senate, the majority leader. Power needs to be pushed back down. Committees need to be re-empowered and they need to be enabled to not only work on legislation, but then bring the legislation to the floor and get it voted upon. That's not really the way it works today. Committees queue up legislation and it often just sits and a speaker or a majority leader will have to decide, eh, how will this help our reelection uh, odds? Does it help? Well, maybe we'll bring it to the floor. If not, nah, it sits. And I, that's just bad. That's just bad. It doesn't work. And Dr. Koser, we see these clips on social media and how powerful and yet how polarizing they can be. So very quickly, if you had a magic wand, what are three things that you would fix right now in Congress? Uh, first, change the budget process. It's 50 years old and it has very few incentives for responsible behavior. In fact, it encourages irresponsible budgeting, hence our trillion dollar deficits. Uh, second thing is increase staffing for congressional committees uh, and have more of those staff be kind of permanent professional staff, not staff who just get picked based upon whether they're wearing a red shirt or a blue shirt. Third thing is I would like Congress to actually invest some dollars in creating a congressional regulatory office. This is an idea Phil Wallach and I have promoted. So much of policymaking today is done by presidents through executive agencies. Congress has real, really very little uh, resources, capacity to engage that area, which means the president increasingly can just make law without Congress. All right, Dr. Koser, quickly switching topics. As I've, I've mentioned, I am fascinated by Congress. So I'm just curious, what caused you to go ahead and study Congress? I um, got my PhD at NYU. I was going to teach, but I decided that before teaching political science, I needed to go out and actually be involved in governance. I think it's a bad thing for people to teach political science who have not been involved in governance. So I got a, a presidential management fellowship, which gave me two years to go work in the federal government. And I landed at the Congressional Research Service. And I thought I was going to spend two years there and rotate off to academia. And uh, well, the rest was history. 20 years later, think tankery. All right. I love it. And as someone who has interned in Congress, I can agree with you that the real world experience is very important. So one last question. It's a little bit more on the professional side. Uh, is there something that you now know today that you wish you knew during college? And what would that be for our listeners? Uh, the trite answer is everything I've learned since college, I wished I knew back then. Uh, but a little more focused answer would be um, in conversing with others, whether it's our friends, our family, our personal lives, or whether it's playing the roles of a citizen, uh, mass democracy, or in the, an employee in a workplace. I think we moderns tend to forget the importance of persuasion, that human beings are a fickle creature. They are not calculating machines. I think, as many of us have gone through college and all that, we come to think of interactions as being simply fact and analysis based interchanges. I jam a bunch of facts in your face and basically cross my arms and decide I'm right and wait for you to come around to my point of view. And when you don't, I throw up my hands and think you're a dingle bell. Um, that seems to happen an awful lot. And we need to remember the wisdom of our founders and the wisdom of the ancients, which is 
rhetoric, persuasion. You got to employ those if you're going to work with people and have successful relationships. That is very true. Dr. Kosar, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.